You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Before we get started today, please remember to visit wealthformula.com. That's where you can download our special report on reducing taxes and accredited investors can sign up for Investor Club. So Investor Club, by the way, you know, our club for accredited investors has been very busy over the last few weeks. We had our first offering, which was uh, for ATM machines, and then our current offering for our luxury resort in Belize, which is picking up lots of steam. Now, there's lots more coming down the pipe. So if you are an accredited investor, get on board now so you don't miss the boat. Now, speaking of savings accounts, in the 1980s, you could get double-digit returns on your savings, right? Now, I don't remember this well because I was a kid, but I do remember I had like a few hundred bucks in the bank account in a savings account, and every once in a while, my parents would let me go to the bank and take out the interest, and it was actually like 20 bucks. It was fun, and interest rates at that time were high. I didn't know that, but that's why I got some money from my few hundred dollars that were in there from you know various presents that I had gotten for my birthday, et cetera. That said, inflation was out of control as well, so the real value of earnings from that interest might not be quite as attractive as it is at first glance, but it was still much better than it is today. Now, we have since become an economy of low interest rates and debt. And at first, we use these tools to fuel our economy and to create better lives for ourselves. But eventually, like most drug users, we became addicted. And now we can't live without debt and inflation. We need to create more debt just so that we can pay off our old debt. And we need inflation to devalue and erode the debt we have. So what do you do in this kind of economy? Where do you put your money? Well, as they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. If we must have inflation to pay for our fiscal sins, ride the wave. Invest in real assets, real estate, raw land, precious metals, and art. Why? Well, because inflation happens, it does not leave real assets behind. We inflate together, and that's the whole idea behind becoming a real asset investor. Now, there are few people who understand this and explain this better than this week's guest on Wealth Formula Podcast. So when we come back, a discussion with a financial expert and author, Mr. Christopher Whalen. Welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is Mr. Christopher Whalen. He is an investment banker and senior managing director, head of research at Kroll Bond Rating Agency, where he's responsible for credit ratings for financial institutions, corporates, and sovereign nations. He is also the author of Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream, published in December of 2010. In 2014, he co-authored Financial Stability, Fraud, Confidence and Wealth of Nations. Christopher's new book project is titled Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise. And we'll talk a little bit about that later. Christopher also contributes to Zero Hedge, American Banker, Housing Wire, The National Interest. And he's also testified before Congress, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the FDIC on a range of financial and economic and political issues. He appears regularly in such media outlets as CNBC, Bloomberg, Fox News, and Business News Network. So in other words, Chris knows a little bit about what he's talking about. So welcome, Chris. 
Oh, thank you for having me. So obviously these topics are incredibly interesting and you've written about them and talked about them in detail. And one of the things that's right in our wheelhouse is this book that you wrote back in 2010, which was uh, Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. So give us a little hint here. How did money and debt build the American dream? Inflated is a opinionated financial history of the United States. I tried to reconcile the view of the historian on the one hand and the economist on the other because they kind of tend to stay in their own silos. The economists assume that what was written in the history books is right. The historians, on the other hand, do the same thing with economics. And I wanted to try and describe the different periods in the U.S. starting from inception and how the different layers of financial leverage, credit, were created that drove growth in this country. Part of the growth was simply the expansion uh, across the United States and the people who came here and the demand that they had for a number of different types of goods and services. But there were also periods when the creation of credit enabled very important things to occur. For, for example, the Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln was elected to the presidency, government basically had no money, he had no army, and he had to figure out how to finance all of this. And one of the ways that they did it, other than selling debt to individuals, was to create national banks, which competed with state chartered banks, and which would buy the debt issued by the government. They also created paper money that didn't have any backing with gold, traded to a considerable discount versus gold during the war and, and the years after. So these were all ways that government created leverage and created the opportunity for growth because of the liquidity that that leverage provided. And that's really kind of one of the central themes in the book. Yeah. So effectively, kind of what we're talking about is the idea that for our audience who are you know non-economists, there are sort of two parts to it, aren't there? There's the production aspect. What are we building? What are we producing? And the other is what's causing inflation. And exactly. typically that is some level of credit or that's what's causing the inflation. So for example, you know, we have a property in Belize that we are funding right now. And in Belize, there is actually no leverage. So we're actually, mm. if you compare the price per square foot for luxury property in Belize, compare that to the U.S. where there is leverage, it's uh, all quite a bit less expensive. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, very much. Um, one of the easy ways for people to get their minds around the whole concept of inflation is to look at the way that the value of real estate has risen over the past half century and more. That's really a good surrogate for the general level of price inflation. You can find all sorts of tools on the internet that'll tell you what a dollar was worth, you know, back in the depression, for example, versus today. But the real message is, is that society has always accepted and encouraged a certain minimum level of inflation for the simple reason that it, it gives people the appearance of growth, even though it's eating away at the value of their money. And unfortunately, today, we now have a central bank led by Chair Yellen, who explicitly embraces the idea of having at least a 2% inflation rate. And what they're really doing there is they're using that steady erosion in the value of money to eat away at all the accumulated debt, especially public sector debt. 
because if you had zero inflation or even a deflation in prices where you might see real estate fall for a period of time, that would get to be a serious problem and right. you would see a lot of debt defaults. So that's why, you know, the politicians particularly and the, the central bankers have pretty much embraced the idea that you have to have inflation all the time. Yeah, I mean, actually, wasn't that uh, Mario Draghi had said that uh, maybe a year ago? Essentially, his comment was that the ECB would uh, create inflation at whatever cost, right? Correct. Right. And what he's really doing is he's taking money away from savers, and he's transferring that value to debtors. Right. That's really the whole point of the last 10 years, a zero interest rate environment. You see it in Japan. You see it in Europe. And the whole point is, is that both governments and banks and other entities are so heavily in debt that they can't even pretend to repay the debt. They have to go out and borrow the uh, the interest just to roll the debt over. Yeah. The idea of repaying the principal has long since been impossible. So we're essentially in the tertiary phase of finance. You think of the early stage when people actually earn enough money to pay their debts off. The second stage is when they can't pay the principal, but they're still able to service the interest payments with their income. And the tertiary stage is when they have to borrow everything and just roll it. And at that point, governments start to explicitly em- embrace inflation of money just to try and stave off default. I mean, you see this with Greece. We're probably going to have another debt crisis in Europe and in Greece later this year. And the simple reason is they can't tolerate any more austerity. The people there have already suffered terribly. And the Europeans don't want to write off their debt because if they do it in Greece, then they're going to have to deal with other other nations in Europe the same way. Yeah. So what do we do at this point? Because effectively, for reasons that you have suggested with our massive, let's just talk about the United States, but our massive debt that we have here, we are in sort of inflationary trap, aren't we? What else can we do? I mean, certainly if the economy were growing at such a pace, then maybe we would be able to accept less inflation in order to pay our debt. But what's the solution in your view? I mean, is there a way out of an inflationary trap like we're in right now? Well, the way out, and it's a difficult one, is to accept the fact that it's not normal for an economy to grow at 4 or 5 or 6% a year. Wealth really accumulates more or less at the population growth rate. And so after World War II in the United States, population was growing 2% a year. When I was a kid in the 60s and the 70s, you had pull inflation because there were so many people who had started families after the war. And there was an enormous demand for different products, for housing all sorts of things. Well, today, U.S. population is barely grown at half a percent a year. So it's difficult to get the same kind of inflation. And when the president, when others in Washington get up and start talking about having the economy grow at four or five percent a year, that really is not likely. No matter what you do, cutting taxes or funding infrastructure spending or any of the things they've talked about, it's really unlikely you're going to get growth much faster than you have now. So the challenge, I think, is to try and limit spending and limit the increase in debt that we've seen, you know, even since 2008. The central bank said we had to have low interest rates to stabilize everything, and everyone took this as a signal that they should go out and borrow yeah. more money. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So, you know, I think it's a societal problem, and it's hard to get people 
to live within their means. I was reading a wonderful uh, biography of George Washington last night. You know, he had that problem, too, as did Jefferson. And I think that it's just human nature. Whatever it is we want or need, we want it today. Sure. And the fact that we have consumer credit, we have other means to pull that sale into today instead of waiting to save the money and buy it tomorrow is a very difficult thing to change in a society. You know, in Japan, for example, they will save, goes to India as well, or they'll get the whole family to pool their cash to help a young couple go out and buy a house. Yeah. They hate debt. Right. They want to just, you know, go pay cash for it. That's not typical in the Western nations. Western nations are much more oriented to uh, using debt to finance purchases. So it's a tough one. And the same thing with politicians. They don't want to say no to you. You know, look at all the different pension crises, even in Texas, which, you know, kind of astounded me. Dallas has a pension problem now. And I thought, my God, Texas is such a fast-growing state. How can yeah. they possibly have a, have a problem? Yeah, it's there? remarkable, isn't it? It was about 5% uh, growth. Yeah. I mean, it's easy for politicians to give people something today in the form of a promise that doesn't have to be paid till tomorrow or the next day. I've seen this in the auto industry. Right. And there's not uh, really workers. politically palatable yeah. things to do no. that we're talking about. No, you know, Detroit's an example. Puerto Rico is an example. So I think, you know, to the extent we can, if we can put limits on spending and on the incurring of future obligations, that's the way you start to get ahead of this. And, and I think the Republicans in the House understand this. But certainly they're opposed by the Democrats. Democrats love to give away money, especially if it's not theirs. And it's very popular with members of both parties. It's a bipartisan issue, really. It's not fair to single out the Democrats, you know, per se. But, you know, when the U.S. was growing rapidly, it was much easier to paper these things over. Now with current growth rates, you know, we're like 15 to 2% growth every year, which is okay. But it's not bad because, you know, you can avoid sudden crises and, and the kind of problems we had back in 2008. But it certainly doesn't make people happy, especially when the kids are out looking for a job and you know getting out of college and all this. So it's it's tough to sell that. Yeah, it's happier to sell a expansionary policy. Exactly, and you know, even looking at just in terms of the current presidency, the Trump presidency, you know, certainly some of the things that you've said today are not necessarily in line with you know what the plans are on on his end, at least you know what he says. My thought would be in terms of his infrastructure spending ideas that that would almost certainly add to inflation. Essentially, you've got helicopter money, right? Do you think that that would probably accelerate inflation? Not immediately. The thing about infrastructure spending is there's no such thing as shovel-ready projects. Right. If you really want to spend money on infrastructure, what you have to do is, is give that money to the states and the localities. They have to plan and develop the projects and then go out and do them. So today, for example, if you look at most states and infrastructure projects that are being worked on right now, they were probably planned five and 10 years ago. And the appropriations to fund these projects occurred many years ago. And it takes that long. So even if you were to increase the amount of money available, say, to repair bridges and highways, which everyone would agree with, I think, you wouldn't see the impact of that for years, at least a good five years. And it's simply because it takes a while to assemble the financing and the plan and the people. You know, we have a shortage of workers now in many states. 
especially if Donald Trump's going to send them all home to their, uh, their birth nations. You know, the construction industry has seen a, a pretty considerable reduction in the amount of, uh, of skilled workers that are available. Here in New York, I mean, the big construction projects are maxed out in terms of having really skilled workers who know how to operate machinery and that sort of thing. So it's not easy to do. It's easy to talk about. But it's not easy to make that actually uh, real in a way that would, you know, perhaps raise prices. You know, it's not a bad idea to borrow when rates are low to fund public infrastructure. That's that's a perfectly valid thing. But you do have to pay off the debt at some point, even if it has a low rate of interest. But no one ever worries about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because I had attributed, you know, the rise in rates and the 30-year treasury to, you know, people anticipating inflation because of the infrastructure projects do you do you think there was a that's not quite the case no i think you're right the trump bump was certainly driven by expectations i think twofold one was the idea that tax cuts were going to result in higher deficits and the second being spending increases were going to do the same so the bond market backed up really from the end of october on and it's had a pretty negative impact on housing, finance, and, and the residential mortgage industry. Refinancing volumes have fallen you know, by a third compared to where they were last summer. And purchase volumes are still holding up, but net-net, we're probably going to be down at least a third in terms of housing loans in this year. And that's the 10-year treasury, basically, that governs residential home loans. On the other hand, though, corporate bonds have rallied. The yields on high-yield debt and even investment-grade bonds have continued to go down because investors are hungry. Right. They want to buy paper. Yeah. So you've had this bizarre situation where the government bond market has been backing up and impacting a lot of sectors that basically depend on that as their weather vane. And yet, at the same time, investors are so keen for paper of all descriptions that the uh, corporate bond market has been rallying along with equities. But I think you're you're going to see that change real soon. I mean, we, we don't have the earnings to justify current equity market valuations by any means. Yeah, so your thought would be interest rates probably going to go down. I'm, look, I'm calling for a rally in the 10-year. I yeah. we wrote a note this week at Kroll basically suggesting that you could see interest rates rally rather dramatically. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit. You alluded to this before, but I think it's kind of an interesting idea, which is, the effect on, you know, the Trump administration's, I think, generally anti-immigration policies and how that affects us and, you know, compared to other countries like, say, Canada, which seems to have a significantly more open immigration policy. How do you think that affects us or, does it, or do you not think that it is going to have the impact that it might uh, seem to? Well, look, over the last several decades, Immigration to the United States, especially from Latin America, has certainly held wages down in the U.S. The influx of relatively low-skilled workers has enabled um, many, many tasks to be filled with these workers as opposed to uh, you know, residents in this country, long-term residents. Limiting immigration to me is a bad idea. I'm, I'm a child of immigrants. We all are. And I think particularly picking a fight with the Mexicans is a, is a really uh, ill-advised policy. You know, for all intents and purposes, the, so- the southern border of the United States is Mexico and Guatemala. 
if you really understand Central America and how it works. And I think uh, we ought to be working with the Mexicans. Obviously, we want to try and preserve jobs in this country, but we lose a lot more jobs in the U.S. to technology than we do to immigration, whether it's legal or, or illegal. And I just think the whole issue, unfortunately, you know, became very politicized during the election season, probably helped Donald Trump win the election, but it's not going to help us create jobs. And I, I hope that cooler heads are going to prevail eventually in that regard. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, let me ask you this. So you wrote this book that, you know, we've been talking a lot about sort of the debt and inflation. You wrote that book seven, eight years ago back, you know, right after, I guess, the Great Recession. And now, how have things turned out from that point? And what's changed? And then and then take it a step further for me and tell me what you think the next 10 years look like based on that trajectory. Well, I think the story of uh, debt and, and leverage as a, a means of fueling growth has certainly been validated, as, as I described it in the book. The difference, though, is that today, when the government goes out and incurs, uh, you know, say, a billion dollars worth of debt, they don't get much growth as a result because they're not financing productive things. They're not investing in assets that are going to create jobs and create prosperity. They're simply uh, funding transfer payments in terms of income because a big chunk of the federal budget is about transferring money from one person to another. That doesn't get you any growth. In fact, there are many analysts who think that the growth in the federal debt actually hurts economic growth over the, over the long term. What's happened is that the Fed, recognizing this, has started to focus on manipulating asset prices, the prices for bonds and even stocks, real estate, in an effort to try and make growth go faster. Because I think they realize that whereas in the 70s and the 80s, if the government increased deficits, you got some growth. You got some job creation and some really tangible, at least short-term benefits. Today, we don't have that. And so, in a sense, the central bankers are thwarted in terms of being able to fine-tune the economy and engage in the social engineering that they, they do. And they're running out of ways to provide at least nominal growth. Uh, and that's why you've seen this whole flirtation with negative interest rates, with the Fed out buying massive amounts of securities to push interest rates down. And it's had an impact. I mean, we've got bubbles in real estate today, commercial real estate. We had a bubble in oil that was largely driven by central banks. Uh, it has affected other commodity prices. So I think the story that I told in Inflated is continuing. Um, the difference really between this period and, say, 20, 30 years ago is that the low interest rate regime from 2008 until about you know 2015, or even last year, kind of put everything on hold in terms of the growth of the government debt, although under Obama it certainly went up a lot. But the cost, the interest they had to pay was minimized. But that's not going to be the case in the future. The, the cost of the federal debt is starting to accelerate. And, you know, this whole issue of indebtedness, I think, is going to very much come back to the fore politically because there's no way to get away from it. It's just basic arithmetic. And you've had 
people in politics talking about, you know, defaulting on the debt and limiting payments and all the rest of this, which isn't a very good idea. But in an economic sense, in a real sense, when the value of money falls and the government's just giving you your nominal dollar back, that is, in effect, an economic default. Right. If, the, if the central bank has to print money to pay its bills, that's not really paying you back what you lent them, is it? To me, that the, the story continues, but it's the story of democracy. All free societies always go this way. Uh, that's why the founders and, and many conservatives fought so hard against the central bank, because they knew precisely this was going to happen. So where does it end? How does this cycle end, in your view? I mean, I certainly understand what you are suggesting is a potential solution, but we, we also agree that it's probably not politically uh, feasible. So where does this lead us? Well, I think for Americans, the good news is that our society is still relatively dynamic, and we are able to still grow largely on an internal basis, even though we, we obviously have a lot of commercial relationships with nations around the world. I think that the situation facing the U.S. is very different from that facing Europeans and some of our friends in Asia in the sense that if we're able to deal with some of these issues on the margins, I think over time we can get things back on track in the sense of being able to have a reasonably stable economic situation. You know, I'm not one of these people who's predicting the end of the world. I will say, though, that you can anticipate that the value of the paper dollar is going to continue to fall. So as an investor, as somebody concerned with wealth and protecting your, your family and yourself, you always want to diversify into real assets that can resist that erosion. So real estate, precious metals, other types of investments that aren't correlated to the value of the paper dollar, and also to some extent the uh, financial markets. One of the most popular investment topics when I'm out speaking around the country is how do I find investments that aren't correlated to what's going on on Wall Street, yeah. and what's coming out at us from Washington. If you understand that the politicians are never going to be particularly righteous when it comes to issues like inflation, and if you try and balance where you save your money and how you save your money and the kind of assets you put it in, like a business and things like that, I think you can do fine. Because this country's biggest advantage is that we're still a free society that still protects private property and has a lot of other attributes that you just don't have in other nations around the world. You know, the Russians could back their currency with gold tomorrow. But right. does anyone trust them? No. Right. And the same thing Donald the Trump, Chinese, I think, I mean, trusts them. <laughs> they're all running out of there as fast as they can. Yeah. So, you know, they're buying real estate here. The Chinese have put a trillion dollars in yeah. this country over the last four and a half, five years. Yeah, I think uh, that's now, that's a very good point because, you know, you hear a lot. And we talk, uh, Chris, on this show uh, exactly about what you just said. I mean, we're we're all about real asset investing and investing in real things in order to hedge inflation and, you know, not just – you know, if inflation's going to happen, well, great. I own something that's going to inflate with it. You know, that that's the whole idea with our investors. Let me ask you, too, uh, you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that you were not sort of a doomsday guy. I mean, there's plenty of doomsday folks out there, as you know. Is yes, there? there well, my, my good friend Jim Rickards, I love his stuff. <laughs> right. I'm a huge <laughs> Jim Rickards fan, huge Jim Rickards fan, and hopefully we'll have him on the show soon as well. And, you know, Tell me this, though. Is it possible, in your view, to 
get to that place of stability without some sort of massive correction. Now, certainly you talk about Jim Rickards and we know where he falls on this and the idea of the avalanche and, you know, and we're just kind of building up to some, you know, cataclysmic event effectively. Then all of a sudden the SDR jumps in and we've got global currency, et cetera, et cetera. You don't see that. Is that right? Can we do it without a correction? No, I haven't signed on to his, Well, going back to what we were saying about my book, the global SDR would be another layer of leverage. If you go back to the Civil War and you think of, okay, national banks, that was one layer. Then we created the Fed in 1913. That was another layer. And then we go through the Depression, and you have all of these government agencies created that can then support more leverage. And so each time you were building up different layers of, of indebtedness, that would drive at least short-term growth. Uh, And now the whole thesis behind Jim's work on the IMF is that all of the nations around the world are so heavily indebted, they can't borrow any more themselves. And so Christine Lagarde is going to come riding in on a white horse with this new ersatz money and essentially give them another way of borrowing. And, you know, the logic actually is pretty sound. I, I have a lot of respect for Jim's work. I just think politically, you couldn't sell that in the United States. I think even our friends in the Democratic Party would probably recoil at that one, and the public certainly would. The Republicans would never accept it because they they still have a pretty old-fashioned view of money and debt. And, you know, maybe sometimes they don't understand all the nuances, but they would really not go along with that program. Yeah, yeah, right, right. (laughs) So, But you can understand why. I mean, if you look at Europe, there's no growth. You have heavily indebted countries who are all locked in this currency union, and they can't compete. That's why I'm pretty sure it's going to break up, because the Italians and the French and the Spanish, they can't live like Germans. They're just not willing to do that. And as a result, they have become progressively less and less competitive. The Germans, meanwhile, are the chief beneficiaries of the euro. They love it. It's like having a cheap Deutschmark they can export all day long. Uh, but their people are willing to live at a lower standard of living, and they tolerate lower income levels than would be politically tolerable, say, in Italy. That's really what I think is, is going to ultimately break up the European Union. Right. Is there a way to prevent that road to ruin? Yeah, there is. I think we've got to stop thinking about big is better and start to go back to having competition among smaller states and jurisdictions. That's a much, I think, healthier model. You want to have money issues focused at the local level, not aggregated in Washington. You know, Washington's great in terms of helping people fund projects and things like that, but you should argue about the spending and the taxes at the local level because that's when you're going to get the maximum scrutiny as to what's going on. Having all these decisions going off, you know, on far away in Washington is kind of a legacy of World War II, and, and we need to get away from that. I'd love to see a devolution of a lot of the power in Washington back to the states, I think it would be very healthy. And just encouraging small business, encouraging local economic activity, I think would be extremely beneficial for the U.S. And you have a lot of people in politics today who believe that. So we'll see. I I, I think inevitably we're going to have to go in that direction. We're going to dust off the uh, federalism proposal of Richard Nixon, God help us. Uh, My dad was a speechwriter to Nixon, so I I got to meet him a few times when I was a young man. He was a terrible man. (laughs) (laughs) Let's switch gears a little bit, I guess a a little bit lighter. 
and talk a little bit about your new book. So it's Ford Men. Ford Men, yeah. Yeah, from inspiration to enterprise, right? Yeah. Um, The subtitle was suggested to me by a dear friend, Timothy Dickinson, who's a resident of Washington, a a polymath, just a brilliant man, uh, years ago. It was actually my first book. I worked on it about 12 years ago, but I didn't have a happy ending because 12 years ago, Ford Motor Company was in a lot of trouble. Uh, Jacques Nasser had resigned and Bill Ford had stepped in as CEO and he really wasn't qualified to run the company, but he was trying to protect the family's stake and, and just hold things together after the dot-com bubble and all the rest of it. So the story tells the tale really of all the different people who helped make Henry Ford and, and Ford Motor Company successful because over the last century, they've kind of faded into the background and the public relations operation at Ford Motor Company has airbrushed everything. So you think that Henry Ford did everything by himself. You know, Henry Ford invented the production line and Henry Ford came up with the $5 a day wage and all the rest of it. None of that's true. They start off really, the subtitle of the book, From Inspiration to Enterprise, uh, really was inspired by James Cousins, who was an early investor in Ford Motor Company. He had been a clerk working for a coal dealer named Malcolmson, who was one of the early investors in Ford. Uh, Ford Motor Company was Henry Ford's third company. He had had two previous business failures. And he wasn't even an officer of the company when it was started because he was so disreputable that it would have doomed the enterprise to failure. So Cousins had to watch Ford. And Cousins was essentially the manager of this company who pushed Ford to sell cars instead of tinkering endlessly. And he really made the thing successful. But, you know, 10 years or so after the company started, he and, and Ford had a break and Cousins left. And he became, he was a very wealthy man because the, the company had been so successful. Uh, and he became the senator from Michigan and uh, was a very interesting figure uh, in, in you know, Michigan political life for two more decades. And the fascinating vignette that one of them that got me interested in this project was the attempt by Henry Ford in the early 1930s, 1933, to take all his money out of the bank in Detroit. And Herbert Hoover and all the politicians at that time begged him not to do that. His own son, Etzel, was supporting several banks in Detroit. But Henry was, you know, set in his ways. He was a very stubborn man. And so when the governor of Michigan found out about this, he declared a bank holiday. And Mm. a couple weeks later, when FDR took office, and said, you know, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Every bank in the country from Detroit to New York was closed. Huh. And that was largely because of Henry Ford's selfishness. And I thought years ago, I'm a big fan of the Depression, and you know, I collect books from that era, and I thought, how is it that we never talk about this? This is kind of significant. <laughs> it's fascinating, yeah. Right. Uh, and But Cousins was involved in that situation. It was written extensively in Herbert Hoover's memoirs and a number of other books that were published in that era. But it just kind of, you know, Ford was a giant figure, but he was also a very imperfect man. He was a lot like Steve Jobs, mm-hmm. very difficult and needed a lot of help. Like, for example, the guy who invented the assembly line that everybody attributes to Henry Ford was Charles Sorensen, the great uh, Danish manager who worked for Ford for 40 years, wrote a great book, My 40 Years at Ford. And he was the guy who came up with the assembly line. The reason they needed that was because of demand for automobiles. 
was so intense, they could have sold anything. And remember, the Ford Model T was produced for a quarter of a century, uh, you know, from the early part of the, the 1900s till 1927, almost unchanged. They kept driving the price down, and Ford dominated the entry level in the automotive sector, but they didn't have anything else. So General Motors grew to several times the size of Ford, and through most of the 20th century, they would compare Ford to Chevrolet. They wouldn't even bother comparing Ford to General Motors because it was so much bigger. So, you know, it's a fascinating yeah. story, and it's a story about America. It's a story about a very courageous family. Um, you know, the Ford family, is, as they go, is, is quite admirable. They're characters, too. And I end the book with, with Bill Ford and, you know, the fact that he took over the company. His Goldman Sachs bankers on the board of directors found Alan Mullally at Boeing and hired him. And Mullally really turned the company around. He, he made enormous changes. Uh, but the tension in the book is between the family on the one hand, who don't make cars. In fact, the last Ford who really made cars was Edsel. And on the other hand, they have all these managers who run the business for them but aren't really in charge. Uh, and that's kind of the tension throughout the book. It's just describing those relationships. You know, Lee Iacocca, there were many, many others. Uh, Robert McNamara, one of the whiz kids right. who worked at Ford. Yeah. So there's a lot of very interesting figures in the book. But I, I like the story of Ford, Henry Ford and James Cousins. If I were going to make a movie out of this, I would want to tell their story. <laughs> it's a fascinating one. And Cousins was a real interesting man. A, everybody in the Ford family owes him a big debt of gratitude. So again, that is Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise. And the last I checked, that was still a pre-order on Amazon. Um, and yeah. so hopefully by the time some of the listeners out there who are listening to older podcasts, check it out. It's probably out by now. So yep. Chris, tell us how can we learn more about you and your work? Do you have a website or something that we go to? Yes. My personal website is com. And I'm also active on Twitter, R.C. Whalen. There's a lot of material on there. I'm actually going to be putting up a new uh, website in a couple of weeks. My brother, Michael, the composer and technical whiz, set it up. I needed a new website. so, so <laughs> We're moving into the 21st century. Great. Um, and I write a fair amount. There's great stuff on uh, KBRA.com, which is the uh, Kroll Bond rating site, which is all free. You just have to register the macro notes about the Fed and all this other stuff are up there. Mr. Christopher Whalen, it has been a pleasure to have you on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks for being on. No, it's my pleasure. Let's do it again. Now, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Whalen. I certainly did. One of the things he said in that interview that agrees with everything we talk about in this show is to invest in real assets to hedge inflation. Sound familiar? As a call to action, I would ask that you make it your mission today to invest in a real asset over the next few months. How about by the end of the summer? It doesn't have to be with me. Um, you don't have to invest through Investor Club. No, that's not the point. That's just one option. Although if you are an accredited investor, it's not a bad way to go. But look, how about a turnkey house? We've talked about turnkey single-family homes. You can do that. You don't have to be an accredited investor to do that. And we'll have some, we've had providers on the show, and we'll have a few more in the future. How about a chocolate farm or luxury resort in Belize? Those are real. What about one of the many crowdfunding opportunities out there on the internet? Listen, there is no shortage of real assets to invest in. 
There really isn't. That's a myth. So now's the time to do it before inflation deflates the money that you have. So anyway, that is it for this week's episode of Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing out. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.